I am Adam, Prince of Eternia, defender of the secrets of Castle Grayskull. This is Cringer, my fearless friend. Fabulous. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of He-Man and the Progressives of the Universe versus the Snake Men. Once again, I'm Eric. And I'm Lauren. What are I'm real I'm real worried. <laughs> what are this is not one of our fake podcasts, though. This is what we're actually doing for the next few weeks is uh we're gonna take a little trip back through time on the March to one hundred episode. So uh Lauren and I talk a lot about how finally after twenty seven years? No, more than that. Maybe the 27 years. Uh, She-Ra was first, right? Like, She-Ra got the reboot before He-Man. But uh, we felt like it might be cool to go back and look at some of the He-Man reboots, uh, specifically episodes that introduce concepts that end up being very clutch to She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get Lauren's take on these things that she's never seen before. So we're going to work backwards in time because we're future first, starting with an episode of the 2002 series, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Uh, this is from season two where it was retitled He-Man and the Masters of the Universe versus the Snake Men, which is uh, certainly a choice. And this the episode, series was renamed that? It was. In fact, if you look on Wikipedia, they call it that the whole time, probably just to distinguish it from the 1983 series. Considering this episode introduces a potential future major villain, the Snake Men is a real big commitment then in the title. Well, I, I, you are right, and we're going to talk about why that is. Uh, so this is, yeah, from the second season of, of the show. Uh, it's kind of a, I guess I'll set a little background. So Mattel wanted to do something for He-Man's 20th anniversary. Uh, Cartoon Network had gotten a lot of requests for He-Man reruns. This was kind of in the, I guess the waning, not even the waning days, but like the latter days of Toonami's like height. Uh, and these two forces kind of worked together to produce a new show. So He-Man 2002, as I will call it, or 2000X, uh, tries really hard to stay true to the original roots of He-Man, but it really expands the lore, including telling He-Man's origin for the first time and embracing kind of serialized storytelling, which we're definitely going to talk about with this episode. That's, that's, that's great. I'm really feeling a strong sense of dissonance that we've decided to go without a theme song. Can we just pause and have a song about snakes? I mean, yeah. Just, I'll I just want to pause and have a song about snakes, Eric. It would make me really um, feel like this missing part of my heart is full. Okay, so anyway, there's your song about snakes. Um, I, re <laughs> I read an Good. interesting article about this show today. where So it's produced by Mike Young Productions. And there was an interview in like the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette about this show. And the, uh, the producer said, We're not writing over the head of our audience like some shows do, but the writers generally feel like they're being asked to write a more fleshed-out script. I think that's really interesting. Like, what is he throwing shade at? So I did a little research. Lauren, which of these cartoons... So these were the other cartoons that premiered in 2002. Jimmy Neutron, Codename Kid Next Door, and Kim Possible. 
uh, X-Men Evolution, Fairly Odd Parents, Invader Zim, Justice League, and Samurai Jack. Those didn't premiere, but those were, like, going on. And then Yu-Gi-Oh!, Inuyasha, and Naruto were also very popular. So that's kind of the atmosphere that this show is coming into. That's a huge time for cartoons. I watched, like, 80% of those. Right? It, it, it feels like, I mean, Kim Possible, Invader Zim, Samurai Jack, Naruto... Those are like foundational shows to say nothing of the like Jimmy Neutron, X-Men Evolution, Fairly Odd Parents that people still speak very highly of. Yeah, X-Men Evolution and has a really, I think, at least it did for a while, had a strong cosplay following and Fairly Odd Parents has sort of a cult fandom to this day. That's really neat. I, I only knew my, co- uh, my roommate in college loved that show. It's really fun. Very good. Yeah, this is kind of an era of like cartoons that anybody can watch like kids and adults which maybe is speaking to what this producer was saying in the newspaper uh interesting fact about that article it ended with two paragraphs about she-ra and the producer says uh or the article says at least he doesn't have to worry about disappointing fans of he-man's sister we're not dealing with she-ra in this series she-ra is going to have to wait isn't that interesting for what well Ah, She-Ra did wait. In fact, it was unclear if Mike Young Productions even had the rights to her, which might sound familiar. Um, One She-Ra toy was produced for the toy line as a 2004 Comic-Con exclusive, which I sent Lauren an image of, because it's kind of the only way we would know what She-Ra would look like in this show, which we should probably mention the designs. What do you think of the designs of these characters, Lauren? Um, very interesting uh i think that's kind of a cop out on my part but they're they're very uh hyper masculine um very muscular he-man and gray skull are very wide uh everyone's also very spiky uh when we meet the horde uh hordak's got these big like spiky sort of bat extension ears and even even our horde members like mantena are just like all claws and face spikes. It's kind of like got a constant sense of, of danger and just masculinity. <laughs> I think hypermasculinity is absolutely right. Would it surprise you, and I'm sure it wouldn't, to know that these designs come mostly from the mind of sculptors called the Four Horsemen. These were people who worked on McFarlane Toys' Spawn line and were big, big fans of He-Man, and Miss, uh, Mattel teamed up with them to kind of design and ideate the masters universe 2002 that doesn't surprise me i found myself thinking if i were to guess what the kevin smith he-man is going to look like i was thinking probably this uh and also when the horde sort of stepped on the scene and we see um grizzlore and leech and company i just went Wow, what a cool batch of action figures all standing in a row. (laughs) Well, interesting that you mentioned that. So, yeah, this episode does uh, bring in the Horde. Um, The general plan was that the Horde would end up being the villains of Season 3, as Lauren kind of alluded to. Unfortunately, there was no Season 3, and there's a couple reasons for that. So, one thing is, Lauren, do you remember when we watched The Toys That Made Us and we learned that the original He-Man line died because no one could get He-Man and Skeletor? They, there was just, like, endless B-list characters available? Yeah, just all ancillary guys. So it'll be like, oh, this one is made of wheels and eyeballs, but I never got He-Man. That sucks. <laughs> so they overcorrected this time. 
to the point where the only toys you could find on the shelf were endless variants of He-Man, Skeletor, Man-at-Arms, I believe, had five. There were over ten He-Man and Skeletor variants. There were five Man-at-Arms variants. And even characters like Ram-Man, Stratos, and Buzz-Off had variants. You could not, for the life of you, find new figures. To the point where King Hiss, who is the main villain in Season 2, was only available at one nationwide chain. Do you want to guess what it was? KB Toys. Aldi. Because Walmart, oh. Target, Toys R Us gave up on the line because they could not move the variants that they had on their shelves. I'm not sure I even knew Aldi had toys. Well, <laughs> that's why you could find them at Aldi because no one knew. <laughs> um, that plus the fact that I don't know if you youngins remember, but in the days before DVR, sometimes television could be very fickle and Cartoon Network tended to move around showtimes of things that weren't in the Toonami block. And this show was the victim of that. So sometimes it would air, you know, five in the afternoon. Sometimes it would air at like three in the morning and you just kind of didn't know. So I don't even know that the second season had like regular air dates per se. It got preempted a lot and kind of between the toy line flooding the shelves and the show being impossible to watch, go figure the line lasted two years. Yeah. I, given that, You've named a lot of cartoons that I was a fan of, and not all of them are Toonami Block cartoons even. I'm just really surprised I missed this one. The animation reminded me a little bit of The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest, which was a show that I was so into. And I was definitely old enough to have seen this one, so it just went over my head. I just never watched it. Well, and earlier you mentioned that you felt the designs were like spiky and anime-inspired. That's like absolutely it. Um, this show more so in the first season, really leaned into Eastern influences. Uh, I think probably trying to get the same viewers as Toonami, as Inuyashu, as as Naruto. Um, that's kind of gone by this episode, like in, in the directing style, but it's absolutely there in the in the design style. I was paying attention to the animation just to kind of see if I could comment on it. And it's funny to watch the sort of tricks that are still in animation in this era, like uh, King Grayskull is standing with his wife and they're holding each other and crying over something or other, and their hair is both blowing in the same loop over and over and over. Uh, and I thought that was really, really funny to watch because someone put a lot of love into drawing this very complicated hair, and then they just did like the same 10 frames of it for the entire scene. Yeah, I, I think you are right to call out that, like, I I haven't watched this show in probably since the DVDs came out, so, like, 12 years ago, and I really enjoyed revisiting this as, like, an animation product. I It was, like, way more smoothly made than I remember. It's, like, sometimes with old cartoons, you want them to just be competent, and I, I really enjoyed this. I know we're going to dissect some of it, but, like, it is a nice-looking show with, like, a good story and what's cool about this episode is, for the most part, it totally stands alone. Like, the Snake Men kind of don't matter at all, which is also, like, a symptom of the weird fact that they gave this, uh, the season two over to the Snake Men. They really don't matter. Yeah, having never watched this before, I was waiting for a, a story, you know, about the Horde, and I did get that. But this, is it the sorceress? Is she who we're looking at? The sort of Egyptian-inspired character? Yeah, they call her Vina in the past because that's her name. She says, like, King Hiss's venom is still hurting my powers or whatever. And I went, oh, King Hiss, there must be some, like, 
episodic overarching plot that I'm just not getting. And incidentally, apparently it was the rest of the season. Yeah, although I did watch another episode in this season because I forgot this is not the only appearance of Hordak. So something alluded to in this episode, there's an episode called The Price of Deceit written by Larry Dottilio, who came back for this show. Um, which coincidentally also involves a Lovecraftian demon coming onto the plane of Eternia. I guess he just really likes that well. But uh, in that episode, we flash back to Skeletor's origin. So in this series, he starts as Keldor, the brother of King Randor. And after a rout uh, on an attack uh, on the royal palace, his face is brutally scarred, and Evelyn takes him to this chamber which is Hordak's sanctum that we see at the end of this episode. And um, he impels Hordak to help him. So there, it's a, like kind of assumed that they have a prior relationship. And Hordak turns him into Skeletor, but says that there will be a price. So we only see Hordak as like a spectral form in that episode. And it does kind of set up the like few minutes of present tense story in this episode. Does the episode you watched imply that Evil Lynn and... Skeletor are in a relationship? No, in fact, in that episode, he's about to sacrifice Evil Lynn to the Lovecraft monster because at some point earlier in the season, I think she betrays him for King Hiss and uh, and he's not too happy about it. So they're pretty much at odds for most of the show. There was just a weird, weird line read in this one where uh, his henchmen are saying like, oh, he must be in a mood and Evil Lynn's like, yes, he is. <laughs> <laughs> Was the was was the sex weird today? Like that's the the read that I got off of it. I was very unsettled, <laughs> but apparently that was just me being gross. Well, it kind of sets up the cliffhanger at the end of the episode. But if you want to see it as a sex thing, we can. Hey, where are you going, Skeletor? Skeletor's in one of his moods today. Yes, he is. So let me let me go through the episode real quick. So we're watching The Power of Grayskull, which is primarily told in flashback. So Prince Adam has this vision of uh, the prior He-Man, King Grayskull, defeating the Snake Men at Castle Grayskull, only to come face-to-face with a larger threat, which is Hordak. He goes to the sorceress. He's like, what the fuck's going on? The sorceress tells him, oh, long, long ago, the Horde actually defeated the Snake Men and then started fucking with Eternia and only King Grayskull could, like, send them away. Spoiler, where they send them is the first appearance of Despondos in any Masters of the Universe media. Fun fact. So King Grayskull goes on this quest to uh, set on him by, by an oracle who bears a striking resemblance to Orko uh, to find a, the power sword, basically. And he learns this very Wizard of Oz thing that, like, the power's within him all along. Well... In a metaphysical twist, he imbues the sword with that power, and in the first ever, in any continuity, I have the power, um, repels Hordak's spell that is going to send Grayskull to Despondos and traps Hordak there instead. Unfortunately, in, in being banished, Hordak deals King Grayskull a mortal blow. King Grayskull's essence is absorbed into the power sword. Weirdly, his council of, like, 
support his his like ward chest guys all become like energy beings that I guess then become the elders of Castle Grayskull. It kind of sucks for them because no yeah, one asked they just, them. They just all become old dead wizards. Right. Like no one asked them what they wanted. So that's kind of a bummer. But uh, then then Prince Adam kind of learns to understand why uh, what it means when he calls on the power of Grayskull. But the present tense action, which is again very brief, is that Hordak besieged, uh, like, be, uh, asked Skeletor to help return him to his body because it's time to come back to Eternia. And what does Skeletor do? In an 11th hour twist, destroys Hordak's sanctum, defying his wish. But Evelyn sees what he's done and hatches a plot that we would never know the, the, for the uh, end game of because the show was canceled. So no more Hordak. And thus no Shira. Thus no Shira, exactly. Other than the toy. So that's what I wanted to ask you about. What I sent you this picture of the toy, the only four horsemen design of Shira, which again might not have ever been in the show. And what was the first thing you said about it? That it comes with a hairbrush. Yeah. And I thought that's why you were bringing it to my attention. Well, I just wanted to show you again how spiky it was and how like anime inspired. And I didn't even notice the brush, but it's such a good point. Because it really speaks to how fans saw She-Ra, which was like, they couldn't get past the fact that it was like a girl toy, right? Of like, oh, this is what the original She-Ra came with, so let's give her a brush because it's cute. But like, that doesn't fit at all in this world that they've created, right? Right, and you were suggesting like, maybe it's sort of tongue-in-cheek, like almost a parody, like a nod to back when we used to do that. But I don't think, like, dude toy consumers are the ones who get to decide, like, when we're ready to joke about that. <laughs> oh, I agree. I mean, I, I'm 100% sure they did it as a nod to He-Man classic. But I don't think that makes it, like, a tasteful or good choice. Yeah, it's just kind of lame. All the same. So, like, this is a vastly different version of the Horde than we get in She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. Complete with, as you said, the original Horde trio, Mantena, Leech, and Grizzlor. But... I think it's really interesting that this episode, because it's so far in the past, you can kind of extrapolate facts about it f for, like, any iteration of He-Man or She-Ra. Like, especially with the fact that the Horde gets trapped in Despondos. Yeah, I was trying to figure out if, like, She-Ra were to come into this timeline, where would she be? And would we be putting her in Despondos, sort of in the Rebellion and everyone sort of over there with Hordak? Or would we all just sort of live in the same universe? And now we will never know. Yeah, it. so the DC Comics 2012 series kind of used a version of this origin of like King Grayskull trapping Hordak. And in that world, Hordak used his influence over Skeletor to get him to abduct Adora and then raise her with sh like through shadow weaver on etheria so we might have seen something like that it's it's hard to say the shadow weaver character design though kind of got replaced with like three identical generic dude ghouls i was referring to them in my head as the shadow weavers but they were never called any such thing. No. There there were there were no obvious women in the horde. No, uh I called those guys the horde dementors, but that's absolutely right. Uh the only horde people we see is is Hordak, the three mains, the troopers which I I weirdly think this is like the weakest of all three horde trooper designs. It's just doesn't do it for me at all. Well, there there's a couple of designs in this episode that are just there to show how powerful 
King Grayskull is, and the tiny troopers are there to just get mowed down by Cringer, I think, as a set piece. And then there's a rock guy yeah. that just gets murdered, like, right up front by Hordak to say, Hordak don't care. He will kill his friends. And that's playing off, in, you know, to me, that hyper-masculinity you keyed into is, like, you know, in the Filmation show, when Hordak was mad, he would drop someone down a trap door. In this show, he just kills them. So it is a little edgelordy, right? It's the gritty reboot cartoon. Right. I think um, this version of Hordak is a lot closer to um, Noel and Co's in, in Gravity, but he's way too far on the other side of things, right? Like, he's almost so serious that he couldn't be... Uh, that we wouldn't buy him in, in Princesses of Power. We did establish in an earlier episode of this podcast that we thought he was hot. And if I had to say yes or no, I guess I'd say yes. But uh, I also want to say this Hordak made me think very highly of the potential for a She-Ra in this series. He is so strong and terrifying and powerful that I immediately started fantasizing like, man, if his match is She-Ra... She must be so amazing. I can't wait to meet her. It's so sad that it doesn't happen. I mean, that's so true. Something I wrote in my notes is that he's, like, such a good wizard. That's nothing we... Really, either of the other Hordaks that we've watched, they don't really have a great command of magic, but this one, like, holds back King Grayskull. Really, without even moving, he casts this, like, Tempest spell that King Grayskull can't really get around, and there's this amazing shot where you see Grayskull coming at him and his face is, like, reflected in the power sword, but he's, like, grinning about it. It's really cool. Yeah, there was there's a lot of good visuals and, like, action-packed moments where I just go, oh, this show is cool. Like, it's completely bonkers in terms of physics, but King Grayskull, like, flies up out of an abyss holding, I think, Mantena. Yeah only to just, like, lob him back over his shoulder. There's no use for that. It's so cruel to Mantena. But it, but it made me go, wow, cool cartoon. And it, it's, <laughs> it's kind of like a classic He-Man moment, too, in that he's just, like, no-nonsense, like, taking out the scrubs. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I loved that part. And it is cool, and it's, like, well-animated, so you enjoy watching it. And I think the emotional... Uh, content of the scenes is really good too like when you get that first i have the power and like the music swells i think that's like really fucking cool yeah i could tell how much i would have liked this as a kid that i have the power and the music and even just um how unaffected king grayskull is by hordak's attacks to take it back to anime i used to really like to watch gundam wing and whenever the music that had vocals started, it was like, oh boy, the Gundams are really going to start to beat some ass now because the music's here. I just know that that same, like, juice would be pumping through my veins as a kid watching this. As a grown-up, those feelings were still there. But wow, my biggest critique of this episode is that the pace of the flashback story is so breakneck. And I'm curious if that's true throughout the rest of the show or if that's just true here because we had so much to get through in like 20 minutes. Good question. I also watched the commentary for this episode, which had the writer uh, slash series, uh, like the story editor, the director and some other person who I didn't pick up. And they share your critique. They feel like especially the um, the kind of like 
quest montage is way, way, way too quick. Now, I actually almost appreciate that because it's such like, like, here's a bunch of genre tropes of like, okay, you have to, you know, run through the Valley of Dragons and like scale this ice mountain and navigate your way out of this impossible cave. But like this Orko stand in, the Oracle is narrating it with kind of a little bit of whimsy. And then when King Grayskull gets to the end of the quest and it is like Orko's just waiting for him, I thought that was a nice way to undercut what could have been like a very self-serious moment. Well, the narrative tool of hearing Orko talk about the steps and then seeing Grayskull navigate the steps in real time, I thought that was like a clever way of clipping along. The problem for me is if what we're supposed to get out of this is this really like internal revelation that the power's been inside of him all along, I guess I just wanted to see him really suffer some more and to have these things feel like they were trials and he was really overcoming them. Or it goes like, you showed strength and bravery and kindness but we went, we saw him jump over a dragon in two seconds and pick one tunnel in a labyrinth. Like, it wasn't proven to me as a viewer that he had those things. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. There's definitely a good amount of, like, tell, don't show here. I will say I very much appreciated that, like, the Oracle's example of kindness was that he was nice to medieval battle cat. Uh, and yeah, like, he gave him like water and pet him and like let him. I I think I watched the sequence twice. I'm pretty sure he lets Battle Cat like not go the whole way because Battle Cat's tired, which I think is really cool. Of like, you know, it's not your journey. You've gotten me this far. I also think that Battle Cat design is fucking sick. I loved it. I just liked how big it was. Again, like how huge that saddle is. I just know, like on the playground, if I were a kid, I'd be like playing pretend really hardcore, like riding a huge tiger it's great <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely i um i also think the backgrounds in that sequence especially were like very well made and it's kind of a shame we couldn't live in them more but this is like a a very nicely drawn show yeah there were some moments in the animation and the drawing that were really um breathtaking to me i also wrote down in all caps that it's a noisy show <laughs> and that in the sound design there's just always like wind blowing and things cracking together and banging and falling sounds. Uh, one of the cooler visuals for me was when Hordak was trying to sort of teleport or bring in Despondos, whatever he was trying to do with Despondos. He made a huge ring around the castle, and then to watch that ring dig into the ground and change the landscape around the castle itself... I was like, that's dope looking. <laughs> yeah, and that's a big lore point is it, it makes the abyss around Grayskull. I thought that was super duper cool. Absolutely. It does It does speak to some stuff Matt Young was telling us, though, about current She-Ra, how careful um, some of the episodes of current She-Ra are. Like, the example Matt gave us was Bo shoots a clone and the clone's hand goes onto the door and thus the door opens the Shira staff is really meticulous about like getting us to point A and then to point B and then to point C. Whereas this show, at least the pace of this episode was like, it was a super hard labyrinth. You just have to believe us. Anyway, on to the next thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that's really fair and it probably was just a result of the writers like feeling like, Oh, we can do all this cool stuff, but we only get yeah, twenty two minutes to do it. So 
Let's I'm see surprised it wasn't a, a two-parter. I remember two-parters being a thing in cartoons when I was a kid. I think they ended up wishing it would have been, especially with how the Snake Men story fizzled out. But, you know, it is what it is, I guess. I do think, though, it's funny because in contrast to She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, this episode in particular is super lore-heavy. It's like a lore dump to almost where, like, if this had an uh, analogy in She-Ra Season 5, I feel like that would have assuaged the worries of, like, a lot of fans. If there was just one episode that was like, okay, here's everything that happened, like, present tense with Mara, like, now you get it. Yeah, it really shows us how quickly that could have been done, I guess. And it also shows us another thing that Grayskull could possibly be. It could be a dude. Right, and I, I don't think that's incompatible with She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. It's completely possible that like he is a first one and that the power sword is uh first one's tech that traps hordak in despondos because we don't they don't really tell us in s-pop how the uh, hordak gets trapped right or, or no they do it's because mara seals them in so you know maybe that's with something relating to king grayskull who knows into despondos which is where hordak gets sent in this one too exactly uh, yeah, and it's cool. Like, I didn't really realize it, but this is, like I said, where the concept of Despondos comes from. So at least in that way, it did inform, uh, you know, Noel Stevenson and co. Uh, and the fact that Hordak is, you know, trapped there, obviously. There's no sense in this episode that Hordak is, like, part of a larger army, but there's also not a sense that he isn't. <laughs> you know, it's just he kind of shows up. Yeah, I mean, he brings a lot of guys with him. We don't spend a lot of time really investigating that, but the number of troopers, he's got a, he's got a big crew. He's got a big squad. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I got some interesting tidbits from the commentary track of this episode, one of them being that uh, apparently they actually animated, or they must, I guess, maybe storyboarded, because animating it would be crazy, the entire Horde Snake Men battle that you see in, like, the painting in Castle Grayskull. Oh. And then cut it for time. Just didn't use it? Yeah. Because that would have been so cool to see. Gotta get those DVD deleted scenes. Right? Uh, also, apparently, producers had an idea for a while that, like, Skeletor had been keeping Hordak alive, like, in Snake Mountain, and kind of using him for his power. But then they realized that it would be creepier if Hordak just had rent in his head, basically. Which I think is probably true. Uh, speaking of that, though, this episode... If you're all still listening, our young She-Ra fan listeners, this episode is worth the price of your admission. Please watch just to see Skeletor, like, give a big cackling middle finger to Hordak at the end. Him just, like, laughing and speeding off into the night after blowing up Hordak's little shrine. I laughed out loud for some reason, just the way that it was like, Nope, psych, I hate him too, <laughs> goodbye! You're not going to free Hordak, Skeletor. This doesn't concern you, He-Man. I know this much. Once that sanctuary is destroyed, Hordak can never get free. <laughs> yes. Excellent point, He-Man.
looks as if he didn't want to set Hordak free. It's like He-Man doesn't have anything to do in this episode except... He just stands there yeah. watching Skeletor like Tokyo drift away on a chariot. Okay. And he learns a, uh, he learns a story. But yeah, I think that's such a great ending. And I really wonder what Evelyn would have done, you know, how, how she even could have freed Hordak. But again, we'll never know. He-Man does play one very important role in this episode, and it's to give a very dumb and hypocritical moral at the end. Yeah, the morals are back in, in 2002. Well, maybe they never went away, but they're in 2002. But it's very short, and it's pretty contrary to the point of the episode, isn't it? Yeah, this specific episode, I'm sure there are other ones that involve maybe some more dialogue or diplomacy, but telling us fighting is not the answer on this one, that ain't it. <laughs> is there a moral in this episode at all? I kind of think there's not. Um. Well, no, definitely the moral is like, believe in yourself. Oh, that's true. Yeah, the power. I mean, if that, if that can be a moral, but, you know, you can do it. Yeah, the power's inside you all along. I just think, you know, there's not... There's not a lot of, like, juicy sociopolitical stuff here. I think because it's such a breakneck fantasy-heavy, like, it's a tropey episode, but it's done in a way that I really enjoyed. And so I'm willing to let it off the hook for, like, not being super diverse or, like, not having many ethical points in it because I think it's, like, a neat story. And frankly, there's just not a lot of time for anything, and the cast is quite small anyway. Yeah, I would have loved for maybe a little bit more nod, and this could be a political tie-in, toward the fact that sometimes the person you assume is your enemy has something in common with you. And that would have been a great moral. Like, did you notice that me and Skeletor hated the same dude? Even the worst people have something that they can relate to you with. I don't know. Well, and then isn't that also reflected in the fact that it's the horde that eliminates the snake men, but then becomes the bigger villain? Right, yeah, you're get rid of get rid of one horrible bad guy and a worse one comes in. Does that mean Skeletor is like the George W. Bush of this universe? Kind of. I Yikes. On the commentary track, uh one of the gentlemen did say that uh Skeletor is kinda like the Antichrist and Hordak is the devil. So I guess that make King that makes King Hiss probably the like serpent in the garden, right? <laughs> Yeah, like some secondary demon, but I guess the serpent is the most literal, is a snake. Yeah, but no, that's that's true. And, you know, that reminds me that one of my kind of biggest fascinations and issues with this series in general is that there are these like really smart ethical quandaries kind of going on in the background. I remember there's an episode where He-Man kind of, he has the dilemma of Batman from Batman Begins where like, you know, where Batman's like, I don't have to... Uh, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. So, like, He-Man has that dilemma with Triclops and, like, could let Triclops die by his own misdeeds. And then they just kind of wash over it. And I, I know that this show is, like, not meant to be a deep ethical discussion, but it's like they've built a world that's good enough to support these questions. I wish they could dig into it just a little bit more. I also think, less so in 2002, but... For a while there, it wasn't okay for anyone to die in cartoons. So sparing your enemy is, I think, a lot more common a few decades ago in animation. 
That said, this is not a very good example of that, right, given because... that Hordak smokes someone right away. Well, and I, I really actually like the part where, you know, the Oracle, or, or, Orco, or, Oracle, I can't, <laughs> Oracle and Orco gets the very grave. Yeah, gets very grave for a second and tells King Grayskull, like, hey, you're not going to survive this encounter with Hordak. And, like, it is kind of sad to see him bite it, like... He definitely makes this super heroic last stand as like an even beefier fucking gigantic He-Man, and uh, and Hordak gets him in the end. And then after he's lying there dying, then all of his buddies with swords come rushing out of the castle right. to help. Well, there's only eight of them, you know. Um, but yeah, so you it sounds like you more or less liked this. I mean, liked is a strong word uh i'm not gonna watch any more of this show if that's what you're asking but as like a really interesting animation style to sort of observe and sort of a action action-packed adventure that i can i can giggle at like it was a popcorn movie you know it's like when you go and see pacific rim like i just want to laugh a little bit and see some punching and colors I, I'm making Pacific Rim sound bad. It's one of the best movies I've ever seen. That's not a good metaphor. No, I get you, though. I think that's absolutely right. Like, I, I don't intend to watch more of the show either, but I was happy to revisit it um, in the sense that it is, like, a very engaging fantasy popcorn drama for for the moment, you know? It's not too serious. It's not overly goofy. It does a good job with its characters. There's not a ton of substance, but... I liked it, and I um, you kind of touched on this, but like I do think modern Shira fans would enjoy this episode because of like this alternate take on the bad guys, and especially like Despondos and, and yeah, the Skeletor moment is fucking great. Yeah, I really hope that um, fans of current Shira and fans of our podcast who maybe weren't with us when we were exploring the '80s season, uh, you know, a couple years back might join us for just watching a couple of these. It's like a like a brief history lesson in the things that perhaps influenced Noel Stevenson. Absolutely. So that said, is there anything else you want to cover about this episode? Only that the text at the beginning was like a Star Trek font, and I thought that was weird. I thought maybe Star Trek had some sort of copyright over that font, but I guess not. It is weird. So I did you get the opening where it's like it plays on the classic I am Adam, Prince of Eternia, and then it's interrupted. Yeah. You did okay. So there's that's the season one opening that somehow is attached to some season two episodes, but I get one that's just like on the DVD, it's just like war drums, and then you see the snake man coming out of Snake Mountain, and then you see the heroes like fighting them in like this montage. I don't get the funny original He Man nod. Huh. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, and then I have I have nothing else of value to say other than it really seemed like the sorceress was watching Adam sleep. <laughs> yeah, did you like her Egyptian design? I remember that being controversial, but I kind of dig it. I feel like I would have liked it as a kid because I kind of wouldn't know the cultural significance of it. I think in the modern era, it's probably appropriative. It's probably not okay. Um, I also have questions about like the Shira design that we didn't get is very Valkyrie. There's a little, like, Greek or Roman mythology in it, too. So they're just really mashing together their their fantasy costume tropes. Well, and the Horde Troopers look a little Greco-Roman, too, don't they? With their, like, very angular shoulder pads and helmets. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. It is, it's a fantasy mishmash, but at least one that is, like, entertaining. I think maybe next week, I don't want to spoil Lauren on my opinions, but we're going to watch a different genre exploration 
that a lot of the things He-Man 2002 gets right, uh, this show does not. <laughs> we'll meet Mara, though. We'll meet, we'll meet Mara. a lot of Mara. Yeah, the most Mara you'll ever see, which is sad in its own way. Anyway, join us next episode for a look at the origins, kind of, of Mara. And thanks for sticking with us for this little trip back through time. I think you're really going to love what we have on the other side. Listen to your Thanks for listening to She-Ra, Progressive of Power. If you like our show, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate it. You can also send in any feedback you have to our email address, progressiveofpower at gmail.com, or to our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash progressiveofpower.